Let's pray together as we now open God's Word for us. Father, as we have been praying before You throughout the service, we come now again and we ask that You would come, O Lord, and that You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit, that You would enable me to to now preach and to proclaim Your Word to Your people, and that You would enable them to to hear and to understand and to embrace it with, with great joy. Father, in this moment, may we be sanctified together as Your people. May Your Word come across us. May we receive it with joy and may it bring forth fruit in our life. May we grow in our understanding of Your Word. May we grow in our understanding of the Gospel and who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what He has done for us. And Father, may You encourage those who may be, who may be weak or, or wandering, may be straying. And we also ask that You would save those who, who may be lost, who may not know the, the wonderful Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for Your Word. May you be with us now as we walk through it together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we will be returning to our series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So if you are not already there, please I invite you to turn with me to Galatians and your Bibles. After closing out or... After having a short break last week, and after closing out chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, we now turn to to chapter 4 in this letter. But before we begin walking through our text that we have this morning here in chapter 4, because it has been a couple of weeks since we've been in the letter, I want to just briefly touch on some of the things that Paul was doing throughout chapter 3. Then we'll read our text and walk through it together. So, throughout chapter 3, so be thinking about chapter 3 now and some of the things that you've been seeing as we walk through it. Throughout chapter 3, Paul had been laboring to show the Galatians that they would not be justified through works of law, the Mosaic law, primarily what he was referring to, but also any form of law. And he brought up multiple examples to show the Galatians this. He brought up their conversion. If it was indeed real, if it was genuine, if they had indeed been converted over to Christianity and come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. And then numerous passages he brought up from God's Word. And all of them pointed to the fact that God has always sought to justify His people through their faith in His promises and not through works. And all of that was mainly at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, About middle ways through though, in verse 15, Paul started to kind of break things down so that they could see that the law and faith, it doesn't contradict one another. The law doesn't contradict the fact that God has always sought to to justify His people through their faith. 
in the plan of God. They, in fact, go together. The law having the purpose of driving God's people to faith in God's promises. That was God's purpose for His law. He gave the law so that the people would receive it and then see that they needed God's promises, that they could not work for salvation. And Paul just continued to flesh that out all the way throughout the rest of the chapter. But if you remember, he brought up something that I, that I said we would see further once we got here in chapter 4. The, the wonderful truth that now that Christ has come, we are no longer slaves, but sons of God and heirs to the promise. And so Paul is going to unfold this a little bit more. He's going to paint a picture that helps us to understand how all of this has played out. So if you would join me in verse 1 of chapter 4, and let's read the verses together, and then we'll walk through them. I'm going to begin in verse verse 25. Paul writes there, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That was part of the text that we were looking at a couple of weeks ago. Now Paul continues in chapter 4. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as... He is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 4 by giving us a picture of a son who has been given an inheritance by his father. But the son is still a child, and he cannot fully obtain the inheritance until he reaches the date that was set by his father, which was probably sometime when the child matured, when he became a man, when he entered into maturity or manhood. 
So until that time, though, the time set by his father, Paul says that the child is no different from a slave, even though, technically speaking, he will one day be the owner of everything. Now, how can that be, right? How can this child, who has been given this grand inheritance, be considered no different from a slave? What does Paul mean whenever he says that? What is he trying to to get us to think of in our minds when he brings this analogy up? Well, before we see Paul's answer that he's about to give in verse 2, I want to first say a few things about what slavery was like in Paul's day because it was very different from the slavery that tends to come into our minds when we hear the word slavery. So in Paul's day, slavery was not based on race or color like the slavery we're familiar with because of what went on at one point in America. In Paul's day, anyone could become a slave. In fact, even wealthier people would sometimes become slaves. I'll give you an example that help you see how this may have played out in first century setting. So let's say that we have a a wealthier person and they take all of their, their possessions, their stock, you could say. They take their stock and they invest it in the economy at that time. They invest it, but then the part of the economy that they invested in then flounders. You know, it it fails, and this person loses everything. Well, at that time period, there was no such thing as bankruptcy or anything like that. There was no government support. So the only way that you really had to then provide for yourself was to either, one, become a beggar and just try to, to scrounge up as much as you could, until you may have found an opportunity to to somehow make some money or whatever. Or, second, you could sell yourself into slavery. You could find a, a wealthy family or another wealthy person, and you could sell yourself to that person, and you would become their slave. And you would lose the normal rights of a free person because you would be owned by this wealthier family or this noble person, whatever. So you would lose some of your rights, but you would be provided for. They would care for you. You would be a part of their household. You just wouldn't have your normal rights. You would work for them. You would do what they told you to do. You wouldn't have the freedom to just go about and do whatever you wanted to do. As when the the wealthy person had his own possessions, his own money, and he could do whatever he wanted. So this is the kind of slavery that that Paul is referring to whenever he draws this picture. It's very different from what we're used to hearing about, maybe whenever you went through school and you learned through American history about the slavery that took place, which was mainly demeaning a certain color or a certain race. There was a type of white supremacy going on there. Well, that wasn't the way it was then. Like I just said, anybody, no matter what color they were, could become a slave. And this is what Paul has in mind whenever he draws this analogy for us here in verse 1. So the child 
is no different from that kind of slave because he, continuing now in verse 2, is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Until the child reaches the date that has been set by his father, he's no different from a slave because like the slave, he doesn't have the freedom to do what he wants to do. You see the connection there? The person who has to sell himself into into slavery loses some of his rights. So it is with this child before he reaches the date that's been set for his by his father, before he reaches maturity. He's underneath these guardians. He's underneath these managers who go around telling them, telling him what to do. You may remember this is something that Paul was painting a picture uh, for us in verse 23 of chapter 3 when he used the word guardian there. Now it's not the exact same word here in the original language, but the same concept is going on. Someone is following this child around and telling them what to do or what not to do. They don't have full-fledged freedom to do what they want to do. Instead, he has to do what his guardians and managers tell him to do. And in the same way, moving on into verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So in the same way that the child, in Paul's analogy, was once enslaved to his guardians, enslaved to his managers, we too were once enslaved. Enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You may be thinking, enslaved to what now? (laughs) What are the elementary principles of the world that you speak of, Paul? What, what does this mean? What are you talking about whenever you're, you're telling us that you are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? I have no idea what that means. Well, throughout the New Testament, this word, which is translated as elementary principles in the ESV, the translation that I'm reading from, so if you're following along in the ESV, you see that, that word as well, elementary principles. So throughout the New Testament, this word is used in different ways. But here, it seems that Paul is using the word to refer to the basic principles of worldly, legalistic religion. That's what he's referring to here when he uses that term, elementary principles. Worldly, legalistic Religion. And he uses it here in verse 3 to refer to the Mosaic Law. And you can see where I'm making that connection by looking at what he's about to say next in verse 4. In verse 4, he's about to make the connection to the Law of God, the Mosaic Law. He's going to start referring to it there. But Paul also uses this word again. You can see that down in verses 8 and 9. Or, excuse me, down verses 8 to 10. In in verses 8 to 10, Paul is talking about the Galatians. And he uses the word to refer to the pagan worship that they once practiced. So jump down there with me. I'm going to spend just 
few minutes here just so I can show you how Paul is using this, this word and what he's trying to, to do with it and, and showing us that we were once enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So beginning in verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? He uses the word there again. In verse 9, whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. So you see what Paul's doing there. He uses the word twice. And both times he's referring to this, to the basic principles of worldly, legalistic religion. But what's interesting and kind of difficult is that he refers to the law of God and he also refers to the Galatians' former paganism that they were once enslaved to, which was idol worship of some kind. So how can Paul take this word and use it referring to the law of God, which is totally different from the paganism that the Galatians once practiced? How can he do that? How can he put the law of God in the same category as this paganism that the Galatians were once enslaved to? Well, if you remember, Paul's been showing us throughout this letter that the Israelites, the Jews, when God gave them His law, they missed the whole point of why God gave it, right? God gave them the law, as I mentioned a moment ago, so that it would drive them to the promises of God, which are fulfilled in Christ. They were meant to see the law, understand that they can't fulfill it, that they can't do it, and it would make them cling to God's promises. But they missed the point completely. And they took the law and then tried to, in a legalistic way, earn righteousness through it which is basically the same thing that the Galatians were doing in their paganism. It just looked a little different. The Galatians, although they worship these idols, which are not of God or from God, they had this form of legalistic, worldly religion. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's making the connection that Galatians, you want to turn back or you you want to turn now to the Mosaic Law? If you turn to the Mosaic Law, honestly, you're just really turning back to what you once had in your paganism. If you seek righteousness through the Mosaic Law in that way, because the same thing's going on there. You're thinking that you can earn righteousness, no matter what the channel may be that you're seeking it in. It's the same thing. 
both people groups were guilty, are guilty of doing the same thing. They were, they have been enslaved to the basic principles of legalistic worldly religion. And you can see that even clearer in verse 10 where Paul says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He's, refer, he's referring to the ceremonial part of the Mosaic law there. They were wanting to turn to these things. Practicing these things and seeking righteousness through these things. Now I want to say one more thing about this word that Paul uses because I think it's important to understand what he's trying to, to bring uh, before us here in this passage. This word, often when it's used in the New Testament, it often refers to spiritual forces like demonic powers, which is why if you're reading in the NIV, you read the elemental spiritual forces or something along those lines. And so the NIV translate the word in that way so that you can see that this form of legalistic religion is very closely associated with Satan and how he would seek to blind people from the truth. And the Jews and the Gentiles, particularly the Galatians here, were both enslaved to this type of religion at one point in time. Satan, referring to the, the Mosaic law, he had taken something that was good, like he often does. He had taken something good from God and he had twisted it so that they would be blinded from the truth. He took what was originally meant by God for good to drive them to His promises and He made them believe that they could work for their righteousness through it. And He's done the same thing to the Galatians in their previous form of life before they were Christians. He has convinced them, or He convinced them that through their idol worship, they could somehow please these gods that they worship, and they could be considered righteous, and they could somehow obtain this heaven that they had in mind. So we need to remember that, that when we think about the worldly legalistic religion, it's not, it's not just merely worldly. Satan and his forces, his demonic forces, are behind it. They're in the dark corners of it, sneaking around and trying to blind you with it, trying to blind you from the truth. Now also, even though Paul is primarily referring to this, this worldly legalistic religion here in this passage, you can be sure that all forms of worship that is not God-honoring, honoring, not honoring, honorary, almost said honorary, but all forms of worship that are not God-honoring can be lumped into this. Because although you may not have been guilty of exactly the same things that we're, we're seeing put on display here in the case of the Jews, you know, this legalistic form of worship through the law, and then 
the Gentiles, their legalistic worship of these idols or whatever, even though we we may not be guilty of these same things, you did at one point worship something that was not God. And you were enslaved to it, just like they were. Before I became a Christian, I was enslaved to the God of pleasure. And you can bet that that God can be lumped into what Paul is talking about here. I wouldn't have considered myself a a legalistic person. I wasn't trying to obtain righteousness through something that I could do. But at the same time, I was not worshiping God. I didn't care about God. I, I, I bowed at the feet of pleasure and whatever way I could get it. Whether it was through uh, partying with my friends, whether it was through drugs or alcohol or abuse of things like that, you know, whatever it may have been, that was my God and that's what I bowed before. That's where I sought satisfaction. That's where I sought happiness. That's where I sought joy. And it was my slave master. It led me around like I was on a leash, like I had a chain around my neck. When it called, I did its bidding. You know, I I lived a life that was always waiting for and looking for the next form of pleasure that I thought could satisfy me. Whether it was the next weekend that was to come. You know, maybe this weekend we'll do something that will somehow give us satisfaction like I've never experienced before. But it never came. And so it just led me around. Satan had blinded me from the truth. I didn't know that I was a slave. I didn't know that I was being led around like that. But I was. What what was your slave master? It may have not been exactly like mine was. I mean, you may not have bowed down at the the idol or the god of, of pleasure. Maybe you bowed down at the at the idol of legalism like we see here. You know, maybe you, you experienced a life of growing up in church, you know, always being in the church. Can't remember a time when you weren't in church. But you didn't know God. I mean, this is just something that you did. And so every Sunday you thought to yourself, well, maybe this, this Sunday I can do something differently. I can sing this worship song in a different way. I can read this passage in a way that I please God like I never have before. And it puts me in right standing with Him like I've never been before or or whatever. You know, you were working toward pleasing God in some way. You bowed down before the idol of legalism. You and your works-based righteousness. Or maybe you bowed down to the idol of something else. Your your God was something else. Your slave master looked maybe a little different. But it's still the same thing that Paul is talking about here. You were once enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You were enslaved to the basic principles of worldly-shaped religion. Apart from God, 
Even the atheist who says that there is no God, or even the, ag- the agnostic who says, I don't know, are guilty of this. I mean, yeah, they'll say, I hate religion. I don't want anything to do with religion. But yet, science is their God. You know, what, what, what science can prove, that's what I believe in. They bow at the idol of science, or of proof, or of evidence. No matter what you say, you worship something and you were once enslaved to it. Or maybe still enslaved to it. Until, this is continuing in in verse 4 now, until, Paul says, the fullness of time had come And God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So at one time, you were enslaved... to some type of worldly religion, you know, some type of worldly idol that you you sought satisfaction from. You were enslaved to it. You were led around by it like a leash, like a chain around your neck. You were in bondage to it. And you could not get out of it on your own, no matter how hard you tried. But when the fullness of time had come, and God sent forth His Son, He freed you from it. Now what does he mean? What does Paul mean whenever he says the fullness of time? There are some who think that the fullness of time means that at one point in history, around 2,000 years or so ago, the world was ready for the gospel in a way that it had not been ready before. And they bring up examples like the Roman Empire had developed these roads that could enable the gospel to be spread in ways that it could not be before because you, it enabled missionaries to go to these different unreached people groups and things like that. And they, they talk about all this other stuff that was going on in the world at the time. And I just don't think that's very compelling, honestly. I don't think that's what Paul means whenever he says the fullness of time. Because honestly, if you read in, in the, the gospel according to John, you see that when Christ came on the scene, His own people rejected Him. They weren't ready for Christ. Christ came on the scene and they said, Get this guy out of here. We don't want Him anymore. He talks in ways that we can't stand. We want Him crucified. No, what Paul is talking about here when he says the fullness of time, he's going back to the analogy with the child and the father in the time that was set by the father. So God the Father in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, at one point in time, He made a plan that He was going to create and what all of that looked like in detail. God planned that in eternity past. And He set a time where 
He said, at this point in history, I will send forth my son. And Jesus responds and says, yes, Father, I will go. He set the time. At that point, just because he wanted to. He said it because that's how he wanted it to happen. Not because of anything in the world that was was causing it. This is just how God wanted to do it. In the fullness of time, according to the time that was set forth by God. When that fullness of time had come, He set forth His Son. And then Paul says, born of woman. Referring to the virgin of birth. The, the virgin birth, how Christ came into the world. 100% God being found in the form of a little baby. 100% God being 100% man, being born by a virgin. Born of woman, born under the law. He was born under the law so that He could redeem those who were under the law, right? Referring primarily to His people, the Jews. He was born under the law so that He could obey it for them and then free them from it. But also any form of this legalistic law that we come up with. He has freed us from all of this. It's not about what you have to do. It's about what Christ has done for you. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I want you to just pause there for a moment where Paul says adoption as sons. Because this is huge. And again, this is just one of those truths that if it was not in the Bible, I could not believe it. Because you think about what we just said about what we were like before Christ came. You were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, right? That's what you wanted. You loved the darkness and you hated the light. But Christ comes, He redeems you, He gives you a new heart, He gives you new desires. And He not only just does that, but He adopts you into God's family. God says, that one is mine! You are mine. You are my son. You are my daughter. And you have all the rights of a son. You have all the rights of a daughter. God has taken someone who once was a hater of God and a a rebel of God, seeking the things that were not of God, and he overcomes their rebelliousness, and he draws them into himself and makes them a part of his family. That's what he has done for you if you are in Christ. He has taken you out of the darkness just because he wanted to, not because of anything that you did. He reaches into the darkness and he takes you out and he says, you are part of my family. You have a new identity. You're not like that anymore. You're not defined by the world. You're not defined by worldly standards, what they say of you. You are defined by my Son and what He has done for you. I am your Father. 
You are a part of my family. And this is not all. Paul goes on. He says, and because, continuing in verse 6, and because you are sons, because you've been adopted into God's family and you're considered sons now, sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When God adopts you into His family, He sends the Spirit of His Son, which is the Holy Spirit, He sends His Spirit into your hearts and He makes you cry out in an intimate way that God is your Father. And that's what Paul's trying to get across here whenever he says, Abba, Father. Abba is just the Aramaic form of the word Father. And by using the Aramaic form of Father, he's going back to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read in the Gospels, this is how Jesus referred to the Father. He called Him Abba. So, in being adopted into the family of God, God sends forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart and you cry out to God as Father in a similar way that Christ Jesus Himself does. You have that type of intimacy with God. That you have the same desires for God, I want to say in a similar way as Christ. In a similar way because remember... Christ is God Himself. He's a part of the Trinity. We will never be a part of the Trinity. So in a similar way, we have an intimate relationship with the Father. And we cry out to Him using that terminology. Abba, Father, You are my God. You are my Father. I am Your Son. I am Your daughter because of what Christ has done for me. And you are no longer a slave. God has freed you from your slavery. He's broke the bonds of the slavery that you were once in, whatever that looked like. For me, He broke the bonds of my enslavement to pleasure. And He showed me, for what, he showed me what it really was, which was slavery. He showed me how ignorant and how stupid I was in, in seeking satisfaction in these things. He freed me. And now I know a freedom that will only just get better and better and better and better. As we sing in Amazing Grace, right? After we've been there for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. It just gets better. It doesn't stop. You just understand this freedom and embrace this freedom and enjoy this freedom more and more and more. And you know, it's so sad that many of my own friends, even now today, they look at me and they say, I don't want to be like you, Ron. I don't want to, I don't want Christianity. You don't ever have any fun. That's what they say. You don't have fun. You don't ever do anything. You're boring. They say that because they're lost. 
I used to think that way. Yeah, I didn't want any part of this. This was boring. Who wants to gather together in an old church building and sing from a hymnal that's who knows how old and read from a book who, who, who knows how old that just tells you what to do and what not to do? But I was enslaved. I was ignorant. I didn't know. And that's how they are. They, they look and all they, all they see is that if, if I embrace Christ, then He's going to take my fun away. I'm not going to be able to, to enjoy the parties that I enjoy now or enjoy the, the drugs or whatever it may be. I'm not going to be able to enjoy those things. My fun is going to be sucked away and that's not the case at all. You come to know Christ and you experience a pleasure, a joy, a satisfaction that you cannot comprehend. And just like the freedom, it just gets better and better and better and better as the days go on. Now it's hard, yes. Christian life is hard. It's not easy. But it's filled with joy that no one can take away. That fun that they cling to, it can be taken away in a moment, right? And they constantly have to seek after it over and over and over again, you know, to try to get this fix or whatever it is, you know, that you want to call it. In Christ, there is all satisfying joy that cannot be taken away. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, you are no longer a slave. You're no longer enslaved to these basic principles of the world, this, this worldly religion that you had. You are free. You are now a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. You are an heir to the inheritance that God originally laid out to Abraham in Genesis where He said that all of the world would be blessed through His offspring. Primarily Jesus Christ, as we saw back in chapter 3. You are an heir, if you are in Christ, of that promise. You will inherit that one day. You will inherit the world. Think about that for a moment. The world and all that's in it will one day be yours. And it will be every Christian. We'll all be inheritors of the world. We'll, we'll share it together. You know, there won't be any fuss or fighting or anything like that. We'll all own the world and we'll be gladly to, to just share it with everybody. But this is the inheritance that Paul is talking about. You are heirs through God. In Christ, you will receive all things in Him. And this, this Spirit of, of Christ, the Holy Spirit being sent into our hearts, this bears witness that you are indeed a Christian. So if you can think to yourself, examine yourself, and say, yes, I, I have at one point, you know, even though it's, you know, it's a very up and down type of life, you know, we're always heading up, but it's like this, you know, as we go up. But at one point in your life, you can see that, yes, God has sent His Spirit into my heart and I cry out to God because He is my God. He's my God. As we're going to see in a moment uh, quickly, 
You not only know about God, but you're known by God. The Spirit witnesses. He witnesses to. He this. He is a witness of these things to you. Tongue twister there. If you've never experienced anything like that, I, I would caution you. Do you know God in this way? Has He sent His Spirit into your heart where you cry out of God and call Him your Father? You know, even though it's you know, it may be down here one day or up here one day. Have you ever experienced anything like that? If not, then it may be because you don't know God truly. This also makes me think of, of Psalm 136, the, the passage that we were looking at last week, where we were looking at over and over again, for His steadfast love endures forever. For His steadfast love endures forever. Christian, you have no idea how much God's steadfast love is currently and will be poured out on you in Christ. You have no idea. You cannot comprehend it. Like in the song that we sing, His mercy is more. You have been thrown into a sea that has no bottom or shore. It just goes on and on and on. God's steadfast love indeed endures forever and endures forever in Christ. Now let's come to, to verse 8 where Paul now he, he says to the Galatians, since you've experienced this, if indeed you have experienced this, how can you turn back from it? If you are now sons of God and no longer slaves, how can you turn back to that slavery? And he says, beginning in verse 8, let's read the verses again quickly. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. If the Galatians have indeed experienced this saving work of Christ, as Paul says, if they have come to know God and to be known by God, that need to pay attention to that there because having a relationship with God is not merely knowing things about God, but it's knowing God and being known by God. Would God say of you that He knows you? Would He say, yes, I know that person. They are mine. I know them in a way that I've chosen them to be mine. I've adopted them into my family. Does God know you in that way? Or do you just know a bunch of things about God? And it's very unfortunate that there are many people, especially in the Bible Belt today, that that's the only type of knowledge that they have. And they know a bunch of things about God, but God would not say of them, I know them. And I think it's these type of people that 
the Lord Jesus is going to one day say, I never knew you. You're not coming into my kingdom. I, I, I never knew you. I didn't choose you. You're not a part of my family. Do you know God and does, this, and does God know you? Do you have that type of relationship with God? And so if they did receive this type of relationship with God through Christ, how can they now turn back? After think about everything that Paul's just said, you know, the, the massive truth of what God has done for them in Christ, adopting them into his family, making them sons, heirs. If they have experienced that, how can they turn back to the weak and worthless slavery that they were once a part of? And the same's for us. How can we ever turn back to those things? Yes, the world, it, it gets pretty tempting sometimes, right? And you look out into the world and you're like, oh Lord, that, that looks pretty good right now, honestly. But you think about this truth of who God is for you, what He's given to you in Christ how could you turn back to that? Those things are weak and worthless. There's no power there. There is no power whatsoever to save you, to satisfy you. There's no power in those things. They're weak and worthless, as Paul says. So if you're tempted to wander this morning, take those words to heart. If you want to wander away, wander away from Christ, the only thing that you can wander to, it's, it's weak and it's worthless. That's all you're going to find. It's weak and it's worthless. It's, it has no value whatsoever, even though Satan may, look, may make it look like it is valuable. In verse 11, Paul shows us that if indeed the Galatians and we, if we have come to know Christ, know God in this intimate way, then we, we won't turn away. We will not turn away. He says in verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Why would he say that? Why would Paul have labored over them in vain? Well, if the Galatians, if some of them do turn away from God, then it's because they never knew God in the first place. And you think of passages like uh, 1 John. There the Apostle John writes and he says, they went out among us because they were never truly of us. And you think of great passages like Romans chapter 8 where Paul says that if God has predestined you, then He has justified you. If He has justified you, then He will sanctify you. And if He will sanctify you, then He has indeed, then He will glorify you. These things are sure. If you are in Christ, then you can't lose it somehow. You can't lose your salvation. I know a lot of people think that way, but it doesn't happen that way. As John MacArthur, I love this quote from him, he said, if you could lose your salvation, you never had it. Okay? God does not put forth a salvation in His Word that can be lost by us. Okay? 
And now you may be thinking, well, isn't Paul later on in his letter going to say that if the Galatians do turn from Christ and they've fallen from grace? I mean, doesn't that sound like they've lost their salvation? Well, it kind of sounds that way, but again, Paul, similar to here, he's saying if, you, if you've fallen from grace, it's because you've never had grace in the first place. You've never grabbed hold of it, truly. And that's why you've fallen from it. So, two encouragements as, as we close. First encouragement, Christian. Think about these truths. Meditate on them. Know them. Because this is what keeps you strong in the faith. Knowing that in God you are sealed, you are a son, you are an heir, you are no longer a slave, you are free. And there's nothing that can enslave you again. Second, for those who who may not know Christ, if you don't know Christ, you you are currently enslaved to to whatever it is you, you bow before, whatever that idol may be. But the good news is, is that today you can be a part of this. Today, because of God's grace, you can be ushered into the family of God. So if you don't know Christ, I plead with you, cling to Him because He is the only place that you will find freedom. Everything else is weak, it's worthless, and it ultimately leads to horrific enslavement, which is hell. Father, we come before You and we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for, oh, the wonderful promise that You have freed us from our slavery and You've made us sons of God and heirs according to promise the inheritance that You gave to Abraham long ago. May You encourage Your people with this promise and may You save those who are lost. All glory be to you, O Lord, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.